part. This morning, we are going to read the whole chapter 4 of 1 Samuel, that is verses 1 through 22. Now, I want to call your attention to be um, readers of God's Word in, in a much better way. You don't start a novel and you read a portion and then you jump to the last chapter and then you read another portion and then uh, you try to make sense of the book. That's not how we read books, right? We read books from the beginning to the end. And normally those books are dragging ideas behind them. Normally they are having things that repeat. Normally they have uh, words that are key for the author. That is what is happening here in the book of Samuel. So pay attention to the words that are repeated. I'm going to highlight those for you as well later in the sermon. But just, just remember, we need to read between the lines. We need to try to understand what the author is telling us. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show you that too. But I'm, I'm just wanting to call your attention to that. And also, finally, this is the last sermon that we have for the year, uh, probably, on the book of Samuel. Next Sunday starts December, and we are going to switch to the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are going to start thinking about foreshadows of the Old Testament of the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we are going to see figures in the Old Testament that speak to us about the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we will culminate in a Christmas day with the incarnation of Jesus Christ. So I'm telling you that so you are not surprised about it when it comes next week, that we are thinking about one of the most momentous occasions in history, the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. All right, so with that in mind, please stand so you can hear the reading of God's holy, infallible, inerrant word. Uh, verse 1. Now, uh, excuse me, verse 1. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up the line against Israel. And when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here to Sh uh, from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. As soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, What does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And they learned that the Ark of the Lord had come to the camp. The Philistines were afraid, for they said, A God has come into the camp. And they said, Woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us, who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men of Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated, and they fled, every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter, for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell. And the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli Hovni and Phinehas died. A man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day. 
with his clothes torn and with his and with dirt on his head. <coughs> Excuse me. When he arrived, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road watching, for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the man came into the city and told the news, all the city cried out. When Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, What is this uproar? Then the man hurried and came and told Eli. Now Eli was 98 years old, and his eyes were set so that he could not see. And the man said to Eli, I am he who has come from the battle. I fled from the battle today. And he said, How did it go, my son? He who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there has also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backward from, from his seat by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken and he died, for the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel forty years. Now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant, about to give birth. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured and that her, her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the woman attending her said to her, Do not be afraid, for you have been born a son. But she did not answer or pay attention. And she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel. Because the ark of God has been, had been captured and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, The glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. Thus far, the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Well, let me start by asking you a question. According to your standards, according to your standards, what would you call good? What would you call good? And in the same way, what would you call bad? What is something good for you? What is something bad for you? Because we live today in a society, as Carl Truman has said, uh, it's a therapeutic, therapeutic, uh, therapeutics, excuse me, society. Uh, and because of that, we tend to see pleasure and everything that gives us pleasure as something good. And then everything hard, distasteful, uh, tribulations, all of that for us is bad. In that sense, we ourselves have become the standard for what is good and for what is bad. And we have applied that even to our relationship with God. <coughs> Excuse me. So we say things like, I'm manifesting a good life, a good life for me and for the people that surround me, uh, world trips, happiness, money for me and for my family. And then, when that doesn't happen, we get offended. We get mad at God. It's really hard for us modern Christians to understand that the ugly things that happen in our, in our lives are for our spiritual good. And that those, even those, are guided by the loving hand of our Heavenly Father. We, in fact, see an example of that here in the scriptures this morning with the infant church of Jesus Christ in the, in the, in the times of Eli. The text this morning is speaking about a big, big tragedy that is filled with small little tragedies on the road. And the big tragedy is 
that the Lord has decided to remove his presence from Israel. And that is, by the way, the theme of my sermon. The Lord removes his presence. And we will see this theme in two parts. First, defeat in the battlefield, so a little tragedy. And second, defeat at home, another tragedy. Defeat in the battlefield first, and defeat at home in the second place. Be patient with me, and it seems that I'm losing my voice. <clears throat> Let us then see the first part, defeat in the battlefield. Now, um, if you read verse 1, part A of it, we, uh, you, you may have realized that we are left with Samuel, and little Samuel uh, with uh, his word coming to all Israel. That is kind of like a movie. It's the end of any scene. If you want to picture it in that way, then you will see little Samuel standing before us and then the camera kind of moving away from him and fading to black. And then immediately after, you will see the camera opening up again and then we will see a new scene opening up for us. We will not see Samuel until chapter 12, 12 again. But what we see right now is a different scene. And oh boy, what a scene it is, isn't it? It's a scene of war. So listen to the text again. Israel went out to battle against the Philistines, and they encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. Now two armies, congregation of the Lord, facing each other at the distance. One side you have the enemies of God's people, and on the other one you have Israel. Now, if you have done the, I'm going to read the Bible through a year kind of challenge, then you shall know that generally speaking in the scriptures, especially before Samuel, Israel, generally speaking, stands for the good guys, right? And the Philistines for the bad guys. Even in bleak times like the ones of the uh, judges, you can see that this is generally true. But is that the case here? Well, with that answering, let me ask you also, what side are you cheering on for right now? Are you cheering for Israel? Or are you cheering for the Philistines? Listen now how the story continues. When the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of the battle. What has happened here? If Israel is God's people, then God should have given them the victory. Shouldn't he? If you are a Christian, in other words, everything should be rose-colored. Shouldn't be. If you're a Christian, shouldn't you expect everything good and nothing bad happening to you? Isn't that reality? Well, no, that is not how it works. But it seems that the Israelites have forgotten about that. Listen now as the white beards among them, the elders, are conferencing to know what is going on here. Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So here, here is the thing, brothers and sisters. They are asking the right question. Defeat, defeat was not normal to occur in Israel. If God is with Israel, if God is the God he says he is, then the Philistines should have been crushed by Israel. But now, something has happened. What is it? 
Well, we know, right? Maybe it has something to do with the fact that Israel has been walking away from the Lord. Maybe, maybe it has something to do with the priests being corrupt. Maybe, maybe the Lord is not pleased with his people right now. And what Israel needs to do is to humble themselves, come before the Lord, change their ways, repent, and then come back to the old ways, change their hearts. But of course, as you heard, that is not coming to their minds. To believe that they are in the ground? What? That's absurd. Therefore, it must be that inside the formula of making, uh, of, uh, for, for making God do whatever we want him to do, something or someone has messed up. We played with the formula. It's not working right now, so we need to fix it. And we need to fix it quickly. And I want you to see what is wrong with this picture, boys and girls. There is no self-examination in light of the scriptures here. The Israelites are assuming that everything is okay with them. <clears throat> and they have come to conclude that the problem lies, in fact, with the reality that they are not using the God thing quite correctly. That is the problem. But you see, self-examination is crucial. When you see your life through the light of the scriptures, then that what should never happen to you is to point fingers at other people, going like, I never did that, it was you. Or, it's not me, it's them. Or, nothing wrong with me, everyone else is wrong. Everyone else is at fault. Those kind of excuses normally cloud self-examination. And that is what is happening here. Because self-examination in light of the scriptures should always move us to repentance, to see the ugliness of our sin, and to repent before God and before others, knowing that in Jesus we will be forgiven. But see, again, Israel is not doing that here. Their question is quite correct, but their, their answer is quite mistaken. What is the answer? Well, the Israelites have retorted to magic, magical thinking, thinking that God is something that they can use, an object, an amulet, a talisman. If the ark is there, then God will be forced to defend us. God will be forced to save us. That is their solution. Let's use God. Somehow, Israel has forgotten that they exist for the Lord and not the Lord exists for them. But we do the same too, do we not? We sometimes think that we, if we pray hard enough, if we fast enough, if we got, give enough money to the church or pretend that we are happy enough, then somehow the Lord owes it to us to give us whatever we want. But that is not how it works, not at all. First of all, because God is not a genie that we can use to give us whatever we want. Many times what we want is not even good for us. It's really bad, and that's why God doesn't give it to us. Second, we don't live the Christian life in order to get something in exchange. We live the Christian life because we have been given everything in Jesus Christ. Every spiritual richness is already ours. So there is nothing you can do to force God's hand. There is no formula. There are no five easy steps to make God do whatever you want him to do. That is simply magical thinking. It's not biblical spirituality. 
And that is what Israel is doing here. And the tension in the text is heightened for us readers when we hear two important things. First of all, that the Ark of the Covenant is the place where the Lord sits enthroned among the cherubim. And this is the object that they are bringing before them, as if it were an amulet. Second of all, Hophni and Phinehas were with the Ark of the Covenant of God. If you remember, this is not good. This is not good. The Lord had said that he's going to punish these two rascals. So it is not good it is not good that the very same thing that represents the holiness, the otherness of God, is being carried away by two guys who are not holy at all. However, Israel does not suspect anything. They think all is good. In fact, as soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. And even the Philistines get nervous. Listen to what they say to themselves. A God has come into the camp. Woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us, who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. See, the hype is real in both camps, isn't it? But there is something very different this time. The narrator of the book, the sacred author, is giving a voice to the enemies of Israel. And that is not to be ignored. That is really, really important. In other narratives, we are told that the Lord causes terror in the enemies of God's people. Here, however, in the narrative, we see them emboldened. Why is that? Could it be that the Lord is not fighting for his people? but against them? Listen to the text. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated, and they fled. Every man to his home, and there was a very great slaughter, for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell, and the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas died. Not only this is a great loss, it's a great slaughter. Israel has been defeated twice, and over that, the ark of God has been taken by uncircumcised people. Can the picture get bleaker? Can it get worse? And then the question is, why has God done this? Well, remember the context of the book of Samuel so far, right? Hannah has already told us, has she not? The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces, she said. And in addition, two prophets of God have echoed Hannah's voices, uh, voice, excuse me, affirming that Eli's sons will be punished. This is why God has done it. But notice the interesting thing here in the text. The Lord himself has allowed his name to be shamed. The Lord himself has allowed his name, which is closely connected with the Ark of the Covenant, to be shamed in order to cleanse the iniquity from Israel, from his house. The, the Philistines here are simply a tool of God, uh, and they are being used to cleanse the wicked priests. Yes, I know, it's really hard to see the defeat of Israel. We would have expected to see them victorious. But we are not to forget something very key here in the text, something very important. 
And that is that there is something more than Israel here. Something more than his, uh, Israel's honor. And that is God's honor. And with this action, he's simply cleansing his house from wickedness in order to restore it. In fact, this event is not the exception. God has done something similar to this in a different occasion. Because if you remember, there was a cosmic shaming of God's name in the past. 2,000 years ago, indeed. Hanging naked from a piece of wood, the Son of God stood accursed. All that he was, all that he represented was shamed by us. Why would God do that? To his own son, his beloved son, to make us his children, of course, to cleanse us from our sins, to give us eternal life. This event with the ark then points us forward to a better event, the cross, to the God who is willing to shame himself in order to rescue his people from, from their sins. God, brothers and sisters, endured shame on the cross because of you and because of me, because he loves you. Is there anything, is there anything more amazing than a God who is willing to shame himself for you? Now let us move to our second point, the feet at home. Now we know, you and I, the readers, know that Israel has been defeated in battle. But the people in the text, they don't know that. So the sacred author tells us about a man of Benjamin running from the battle and coming to Shiloh the same day with his clothes tore and with dirt on his, on his head. Now pay attention to the description there. It's very important. A soldier comes from the battle with bad news. And we know it because he is lamenting. When we are afflicted nowadays, People know about it because we put a little black ribbon in our profile picture on Facebook or Instagram or whatever. Or maybe we text a sad face. I'm sad. Sad face. Gone. In those times, they tore their clothes and put dirt on their heads. It was the equivalent of a, of a sad face, of a ribbon picture in your social media. But notice how the tension is masterfully built up in the narrative. We know he brings bad news because instead of showing us, uh, excuse me, we know he brings bad news because of how he looks like. But instead of showing us and telling us about the report, immediately the sacred author moves to Eli. So we are shown the old high priest out of his place, out of the tabernacle, anxious, sitting on his seat by the road, watching for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And it's an image that is meant to move you. Physical incapacity on Eli. And he does not know what has happened yet. He's just waiting. And then it's about to get more dramatic than, than that. Listen how the story continues. All the city cry out. When Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, what is this uproar? But remember, he cannot move. And he cannot see. Now we want Eli to know, don't we? We want the tension to go and to stop and Eli to know what has happened. But notice how the text lingers again. Now Eli was 98 years old and his eyes were set so that he could not see. 
Ah, oh, come on. So even though the man is before Eli, he cannot see what is going on. He cannot see what is going on. Can you feel the tension? Are you exasperated? Why are you not telling him now? Well, get ready because it's going to get even more exasperating. And the man said to Eli, I am he who has come from the battle. I fled from the battle today. We all know, do we not, that victorious people don't run away from the battle, right? Victors come as conquerors. They come celebrating. They come enjoying the feast. And yet notice Eli's answer. How did it go, my son? Doesn't he know already? Come on, Eli. Is he playing dumb? Or is he really hoping against hope? Whatever the case, it doesn't matter because the news are devastating and we can even number them. There are four here. Israel has fled before the Philistines, one. And there has also been a great defeat among the people, two. Your sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, three. And the Ark of God has been captured, four. We know Eli has made pieces already with the first three bad news that we heard here. He has already known it since the first time he heard the bad news from the old prophecy. But fourth, the fourth one, is one new one for him. And he understands what this means. Israel has not gone to exile. God has gone to exile. Away from Israel. And this last thing is unbearable for Eli. And rightly so. If we are going through trials and tribulations and ugly things in our lives, we have a hope, do we not, that God is always with us. But if we don't have that, if we don't have that, if we run away from him and, and over that we reject him and over that we go through trials and tribulations, then we are facing the worst darkness that we can find. Death with no hope, suffering without God's promises, the valley of the shadows of death without any prospects of coming out of that? That's horrible. This, boys and girls, would be like uh, being punished by your parents. And the next thing you know is that they have died. That will be horrible. And yet the irony of the text runs very, very deep. Listen to what happens next. Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate. And his neck was broken, and he died. For the man was old, and the man was heavy. The word heavy, as I told you before, is the same word used to speak of glory, is in the same word to be used to speak of importance, is the uh, kabod of Eli. So Eli, if you remember, had his two sons more heavy than the Lord. Eli thought his children were heaviest, the heaviest thing in his life. They were more glorious to him than the Lord himself. Well, well, here's the irony. Eli dies under his own glory. Eli dies under his own heaviness. That which Eli pursued becomes the very same thing that Eli dies under. Human glory, congregation, human glory is vain. It comes and it goes. And sometimes it kills you. 
John Lennon said that he was bigger than Jesus, and a man who loved him to death killed him. Our therapeutic culture has created people overly obsessed with their appearance and self-esteem. We are filled with magical thinking, thinking that somehow we can pursue our best life now. Traveling, living a crazy lifestyle, pursuing our happiness now, our own glory. And yet it's ironical, is it not? That uh, for a society that is so filled with self-esteem, with affirmation, it's kind of crazy to see that the suicide rates are increasing every year. If we live seeking our own glory, sooner or later, we will discover that what we have pursued vanishes away that there is nothing. But we, congregation, that is you and I, we have been called to better things. Our purpose is to be imitators of Christ. Like Jesus, we are not called to seek our glory, but God's glory. In any case, this is the ironic end of Eli. He's crushed under his own glory, but tragedy is far from over. The bad news have reached Phinehas' wife, and these are the news that are so terrible for her that have started an early delivery on her part. It is perhaps her who teaches more theology than her own husband did in the whole of his life. Listen to what she says. And about the time of her death, the woman attending her said to her, Do not be afraid, for you have borne a son. But she did not answer or pay attention, and she named the child Ichabod, saying, the glory, there is that word again, the glory has departed from Israel because the ark of God has been captured and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, the glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God has been captured. Were you able to catch the word glory, kabod, heaviness, importance again? See, the Old Testament is very, very subtle with the repetitions and allusions that it makes. And we need to pay attention to these stories <coughs> because they meant something important. They want to communicate something to us. And the, the word glory here is a key word, once again. Phinehas' wife dies because she understood quite correctly that the world, her world, and her child's world has undergone a dramatic change. No priesthood, no successor, but most important of all, without the presence, among the, uh, without the presence of God among his people. That is why she does not pay attention to the command, do not be afraid. What good is an heir to the priesthood if there is no God to pray to? To whom is the priest, going, the priest going to serve? As far as she knows, the Lord's presence is, the Lord's presence is, gone, excuse me, is, good, is, is gone for good. And the priesthood has left Israel as well. Yet again, the irony behind the text, the text is deep. Phinehas' wife has a really good point. She has understood it quite well, yet she has failed to see that the glory of Israel has not departed. Rather, the fake glory of Israel has departed. False priests have been removed and have made a space to the Lord to once again to occupy, occupy his role again. And we will see later how the Lord works things out with the Philistines and how he plays out his glory as well with them. But for now, I want you to see the wonderful workings of God's mercies in the text. Because in the second part of the text, there are two main places that leads us to Jesus Christ. Ichabod, the glory has departed, 
points us to Jesus Christ by way of contrast. Phinehas' wife refuses to be comforted because she knows there is no hope. But many years later, this same command with the very same words are quoted by the Gospel of Luke. But this time, everything is different. Do not be afraid, says the angel to Mary. And you know why? Because the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ is the annunciation of the glory of God coming in the flesh to this earth. So you see, the glory, Ichabod, has not departed. The glory of God has come down in the form of a baby. And what is more encouraging, this baby, Jesus Christ, has been born in order to restore our glory, the glory that we lost back in the garden. Paul, in fact, affirms that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of, the glory of God. But in the same breath, he continues saying, and are justified by his grace as a gift. Through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Isn't this amazing? We all have seen in one way or another how human glory vanishes and leaves us without hope. And yet God, God doesn't abandon us, does he? But he himself intervenes and he himself has searched for us. He was ashamed in our place so we may, fi so we may find life everlasting in Jesus Christ. And that, congregation, in the end, is the message of this text. That we need to stop pursuing ourselves, stop seeking our glory, and rather we may come to Jesus. The very glory of God himself. Because in him we find life and life eternal. May the Lord allow us to do so even now. Amen. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love. That you have been ashamed, that you shamed yourself for us. How can we understand such an amazing truth? It's beyond our words. But Father, help us to believe in that. Help us to cling from that truth. That in Jesus Christ, you abandoned Jesus in order to adopt us into your family. We thank you for that, Lord, and we pray that you may help us to remember that truth. And as we go to the world and as we face tribulations and trials, may this truth be a comfort that you are not against us, but that you are for us in Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.